0: I don't know about you, but I'm ready for spring, right? Um, And it's not because of the weather. It's not because I've already had the chance to mow my grass for one time and it's really because of my favorite sport which is basketball now I grew up in Kentucky I've lived most of my adult life here in Indiana so you just kind of have to kind of love basketball right because of those two states I remember as a little kid going to the high school games in my hometown my high school hometown and I remember like coming home trying to impersonate all those last second shots on the Nerf goal in the hallway outside my bedroom or outside on the goal in my backyard Uh, I remember as a little kid watching the UK Wildcats on TV and trying to be like them, trying to uh, shoot the ball like them and trying to win games like them. I mean, it was something that just kind of got cut up in, right? Uh, Before I go any further, I'd just like to say a a little kudos to our neighbors and friends at Ebzell Christian School, who this past week won their first sectional game ever and it came within two points of winning a championship of the sectional. So kudos to all the family and friends and uh, some of the coaches who attend here. Way to go. Um, you know, I love this time of the year for March Madness, right? And I'm relieved this morning. I think my team might actually be in the tournament this year. So that's really exciting. Hope they won't get beat the first game like they did last year. Uh, but uh, I also, I, I follow college basketball. I don't follow professional basketball much. But when I was growing up, there was one person who everybody wanted to be like, and that was Michael Jordan. Now, I'm not here today to solve the great debate if he's the greatest of all time or if that's Kobe Bryant or LeBron James. You can debate that all you want. I just know when I was a kid, everybody wanted to be like Mike, right? They wanted to wear the shoes that Michael Jordan wore. They still do. They wanted to wear that wristband on their forearm like Michael Jordan did. In fact, I had many friends who wore a knee brace when they played basketball, even though they had never had knee surgery or didn't have any pain. They just did it because Michael Jordan did it, right? I grew up in the era where everybody hung out their tongue when they took a shot or dunked the ball because Michael Jordan did it, right? And that's true really in any type of endeavor. We want to be like those who are the best at what they do. In your work, I'm sure you know someone who kind of has haven't had success in whatever domain you might do your vocation and you try to pattern yourself after that person because you have things you can learn from them, right? Also, like if you're a student, you don't ask for tutoring from the person who's getting the lowest grade, but from the person who has the highest grade, right? As you drive through your neighborhood this spring, when you see somebody's flower bed or garden that is to be epitomized, then you want to learn from them. You ask for them to give you advice, right? Well, spiritually speaking... We have one person that we take our cues from and that's jesus when we think about how to have a relationship with god and to learn what he's like when we think about how to love other people when we think about engaging in what god is doing in the world around us it's not being like mike it's about being like jesus as a congregation We feel very committed to the vision that God has given us, a way that we can participate in what God is doing in the world around us, the way to bring heaven to earth, and that is by living and loving like Jesus. It's not something we just wanna talk about all the time. It's really something we're trying to figure out how to practically live out in our everyday life, surrendering to Jesus as Savior and Lord in everything that we do. For the past few weeks, we've been trying to discover what it means to abide. And we have been working with this definition of what abide is. It's about having an enduring relationship with God through engaging in his word and prayer. It's about learning to love those around us in a sincere way, the way that Jesus loved us. It's also about engaging in God's mission, finding the way that God has created us and how it fits into what God's doing in the world around us. We've been listening into a conversation Jesus had in this space called the upper room. It was just a room that Jesus had gathered with his closest friends to celebrate the Passover meal. And it's during that conversation that we see Jesus sharing some of the most important things on his heart. In fact, if you were to take the last week of Jesus' life and look at some of the moments and some of the messages that he demonstrated and shared, it's in those that we might find what he wants us to know and do the most. You might say that he saved the best for last. And so over the next several weeks, as we lead up to Easter, we're just going to walk with Jesus through many moments in this last week of Jesus' life so that you and I can learn how to live and to love like Jesus. In the days leading up to his death, I think Jesus displayed some of the most powerful expressions of what it looks like to live and to love like him. And by watching him and listening to him and learning from him, we can reflect the power of God at work in our life to produce the character of Jesus in us, all for his glory and all for his purposes. As I mentioned, we're going to walk through several of the moments all recorded in the four gospels. And today we're going to focus actually just a few chapters back from where we've been over the last couple of weeks. If you have a copy of the Bible, or if you want to use the one in the seat in front of you, I'd encourage you to turn with me to John chapter 13. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record this moment in the upper room. It seems like the first three Gospels all focus on the like, details of the moment. But John is the one who records the most dialogue of this moment. And I want to see what he has to say because like Matthew, he was actually in the room that night. He was an ear witness, if that's a certain thing. I know that he was an eyewitness. So let's look what John records in John chapter 13, beginning reading in verse one. John says this, it was just before the Passover festival and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the, oh, I'm gonna stop there in verse three. All throughout the account of the life of Jesus, John refers to something as the hour. And all throughout the ministry of Jesus, the hour referred to the time where he would actually die on the cross, give his life as a sacrifice for the sins of all people for all time. And up until this moment, the hour had not come. But now Jesus says, John records, that the hour has come. What seemingly kind of looked like a moment that was just orchestrated by the religious leaders who were either confused or jealous of Jesus, what could have looked like something that Judas Iscariot was part of and masterminded by betraying Jesus, or what could have just been an evil scheme from the devil himself, could have been Jesus' crucifixion. But what we know for a fact is that Jesus was sent here from heaven to earth to die it was God's plan his sovereign plan all along as the time approached Jesus wanted to spend time with those who were closest to him and he described them as his own he, he referred to them in that way because they had a deep intimate relationship a friendship with each other and John says that Jesus loved them to the very end which meant to the very last breath as well as to the most deepest extent the devil did play a role in all this playing out and Judas had a hand in it as well but again it was God's plan next week we're going to focus actually specific on Judas and how he had such a intricate role to play in the ministry of Jesus but also in his um, betrayal I hope you caught the identity statement that Jesus makes about himself. It's actually John recording it, but it's in verse 3. It says that Jesus knew his father had put all things under his feet. That he had come from the father and that he was returning to the father in heaven. There was no identity crisis for Jesus. He knew fully who he was. He was fully God. He was God's son. He experienced oneness with God in uh, in, in heaven he was present at creation he participated in creation he knew who he was where he came from and he knew where he was going there was no confusion on jesus part after completing his mission here on earth which included dying on the cross and resurrecting from the grave jesus knew that he was going to return to heaven it was with this full knowledge and in this confidence that jesus did what he did next It's recurrent in verse four. I teased you a little bit, but look at the very first word of verse four. So, meaning because of all this, because of this identity and confidence, Jesus wrapped a towel after the meal, took off his outer clothes. He wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now, many of you might be familiar with the ancient world and know that there were very few, if any, paved roads in that time. And so people's feet got dusty and dirty because they wore wore open-toed shoes and walked pretty much everywhere they went. And so when it was dry, those feet were dusty and dirty. When it was rainy, they got muddy and stinky and smelly and they needed attention pretty much at every turn. So it was customary for a host When someone visited their house for just a visit or for a meal, for the host to provide a place for that person to wash their feet, some water, a basin, and a towel. This job could be assigned to a servant. In fact, it was considered as the short straw of all assignments. A Jewish person, a master, would not assign this task to even their Jewish slave. According to Luke, Jesus had instructed Peter and John to go into the city and to make preparations for Jesus and the disciples to celebrate the Passover meal in this upper room. And that preparation would have included providing a foot washing station. The meal was already in full swing, John says, which would have um, meant that they were already eating. They were already participating, but yet nobody had washed their feet. In the ancient world, that was seen even as worse than uh, eating with dirty hands. Jesus noted the situation and he went into action. He took off his outer cloak, which would have restricted the job at hand. He took a towel and he wrapped it around his waist. And commentators say that was the dressing or the uniform of a servant. He took the form of a servant. We'll talk about that in just a minute more. But he also found um, water and a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. It is very safe to assume that all the disciples there that night would have been shocked at what Jesus was doing. They might've had some embarrassment that they first didn't wash their own feet, or wash each other's feet. In fact, they may have been a little embarrassed that they didn't offer to wash Jesus' feet. That would have been customary because Jesus was their master, their teacher, their rabbi. And it was common for a follower, a student, to wash the feet of their master or their teachers. But nobody seemed to offer to wash Jesus' feet. It was not unusual for a child to wash their parents' feet. It wasn't unusual for a wife to wash her husband's feet. All that was common. But for the disciples to wash each other's feet meaning meant they had to acknowledge that they were inferior to each other. We know from Luke's account of this meal. That an argument was actually in the midst of the disciples. They were arguing about who was the greatest at this moment. And Luke points to that moment as when Jesus says he has come to serve them and to give them example to follow. It's in that moment that John records Jesus washing the disciples' feet. They may have felt a little embarrassment. They may have even felt some guilt or conviction as he did. They were certainly uncomfortable at having Jesus wash their feet because that was not the norm. I assume nobody really knew what to do or really what to say until good old Peter spoke up. And John, like John, records everything that Peter says that's dumb. And here's another moment. Look at verse six. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter said, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not every one of them was clean. We all might be able to relate to Peter because he seems to not only be washing with, eating with dirty feet, but he also seems to have that ability to remove one foot as he sticks the other foot in his mouth. Have you been there? I have. He questions Jesus, and then he resists Jesus. One of those is much dangerous than the other. It's quite emphatic in the original language what Peter says. He says, you're going to wash my feet? Oh, oh no, you're not. No, you're not. Not ever. Not ever will you wash my feet. We can't misunderstand Jesus's response because while it's culturally laced, it's certainly theologically loaded. Let's talk about how it's culturally Well, culturally or pragmatically, Peter should have been the one washing Jesus' feet, not only because he was charged to make those preparations for the Passover meal, but also because Jesus was his teacher. And Jesus was turning how things were supposed to be upside down. He seemed to do this all the time, not just in this moment of washing the disciples' feet, but in the things that he said in the way that he interacted with the people. An example would be, Jesus says, you've heard that the law says do not murder, but I say don't even hate somebody. Jesus said, you've heard the law says do not commit adultery, but I say don't even lust. Jesus said things like love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted. All those things were an upside down way of looking at the world. Jesus went went against all kinds of social norms of his day by interacting with other people that most people in the world would not associate with. Jesus honored and spoke to women and to children Jesus touched the leper. He healed the lame and the blind and the paralyzed, even sometimes on the Sabbath day. And all that was not kosher. All that was an upside down way of behaving and interacting and living. But it was in that way that we see the the fullest picture of how Jesus calls us to think and to speak and to live. I mean, culturally and pragmatically, Peter's feet were the only parts of him that were dirty. In his personal preparation for the Passover meal that night, he would have gone home and bathed. And then he would walk back to the upper room. And so the only part of his body that was dirty that night were his feet. And that's what Jesus is saying, that a person who is bathed only needs to have their feet washed. And he uses those two words very specifically because they mean very specific things. Theologically, Jesus is pointing to how he will serve the disciples in all of humanity, actually the next evening, when he would give his life as a sacrifice for sins by dying on the cross. Every commentator I read this past week in, in preparation for this message says that if you think this moment is about getting some dirty feet clean, you've missed the whole point. The most important thing that's happening in this moment is Jesus is speaking about his true mission. And it wasn't just to serve by washing feet. It was to serve by dying on the cross. And he would fulfill that mission in the next 24 hours. It's in that moment that Peter's objection gives Jesus an opportunity to say, unless you accept my gift of salvation, you will have no part of me. And if you've accepted my gift of salvation, then you are saved. You are clean." And Peter kind of scratches his head a little bit, and he, he he's kind of wrestling with that. And I think Jesus points to the fact that salvation is this once for all, once for all sin, every sin that we have committed, every sin that we will commit it, opportunity. It's, a, it's what we receive when we accept Jesus as Savior and Lord. We receive forgiveness of all of our sins. But the question is, well, what happens if I've accepted that salvation, but I still sin? I answered that question right in front of this stage in the past seven days. Someone says, you know, Phil, I came to faith in Christ as Jesus is my Savior a long time ago, and I've done some sinning, well, maybe a lot of sinning since. Does that mean I'm not saved anymore? Does that mean I need to be rebaptized?" I think it's in this moment, at least one of the moments, where Jesus speaks to that. He says, if you've received Jesus as Savior and Lord, then you should have confidence that he has forgiven you, he's washed all of your sins away. So what happens when we do sin after that? Well, that's where confession comes in. That's what Jesus is pointing to when he tells Peter that sometimes your feet are dirty and that's what needs to be washed. But you've been bathed, you've been made clean. This idea of bathing is not new to Jesus' conversation in the upper room. We see in the Old Testament, if you've been reading through the Bible with us this year, you'll see that there are all kinds of purification rites that the priests perform on their behalf as well as on the behalf of all the people of Israel. They take a bath before offering the sacrificial lamb to God on their behalf and behalf of the people of Israel. In a little later in the Old Testament, you'll see David who was the king of Israel, but he committed adultery even though he was the man after God's own heart he still had sin in his life. And when he was confronted about that sin, he made a confession to God, taking ownership for that sin. And he said these words to God. God, have mercy on me according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Jesus' death on the cross would provide this once for all washing or purification from all sin for all people. By allowing Jesus to serve us in this way, we can be connected or reconnected back to God. We can have a relationship with him that's restored. We can abide in him, have fellowship with him. Without receiving this bathing, Jesus says we have no part in him. There's no other way Paul picked up on that theme when he wrote these words to the Romans. He says, Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and and prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith this is that once for all moment many would say that the most important aspect of the foot washing moment that night is really this foreshadowing of what Jesus came to experience and to accomplish by serving our greatest need as savior by dying on the cross But I also think it's important to notice that Jesus just doesn't stop there at this deep theological truth. He follows up to that by giving us a command or an instruction. Let's finish looking at what John records next. It's in verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus didn't correct their understanding of his identity. He was their teacher and he was also their Lord. And as teacher and as the Lord, he chose to serve them by doing one of the lowest forms of servitude that they could think of. Second only to his death on the cross on the next evening. He commands them and all who would come after him, learn from him and follow him to do the same. Let me be clear. I don't think that Jesus was instituting a sacrament for the church to um, practice every time they get together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. There are some expressions of faith that do practice foot washing every time they assemble. I don't think that that's wrong, but I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is doing. I believe he was using foot washing that night and the practice of it to give us an example that we should be willing to do anything we can to serve others. It's about our posture and our heart. Jesus is demonstrating the humility that he expects from those who follow him. If anyone at the table that night had the right to have their feet washed, it was Jesus. But he used that right to actually wash the feet of others, serving as a powerful example for us. And he said, No servant is greater than their master. If Jesus is Lord, then we are not above serving in any way. You know, one of the things I notice often in opportunities that I have to serve is some of the greatest moments of service are those things that everybody notices, but nobody wants to do. I'll tell you how that plays out at the Heller House. It seems nobody in the Heller House knows how to take the dishes that they've used and not just sit them in the sink, but put them in the dishwasher that literally is 12 inches away from the sink. I'm venting a little bit. I'm just saying, it seems like nobody does anything about something that we all see. I've kind of adopted a motto over the past several years. Keep the sink clean. That's just something I feel like God's called me to do. So even before I came to preach this wonderful message this morning, I made sure that the sink of the Heller House is empty, all right? I don't know what it looks like at your workplace, but something at my workplace, which you are all visiting today, It seems like nobody that I work with thinks it's their job to turn off the lights when they leave the room that everybody notices is still on when we all walk out, right? And due to our financial situation as a church, we have a new model. Turn the light off when you leave the room, right? Something all of us can do. I don't know what it looks like in your neighborhood, but when all the branches fall on a windy day like Friday, it seems like everybody notices, but nobody thinks it's their job to actually move the branch out of the road, right? I think what Jesus is indicating here that what he's calling us to do is to do the things that everybody notices, but nobody is doing. And that's Jesus' moment. He says everybody notices that they had, dirty feet but nobody picked up the basin in town to go wash the feet and Jesus says I'm doing this to give you an example to follow in your families in your workplace in your neighborhood everywhere you go do the things that everybody sees but that nobody else is doing our status as his servant as his friend like he called us last week even as his co-heir in heaven entitled us to take the lowest form possible. And that is maybe one of the greatest expressions of our faith and trust in Him. We serve others because He served us. I don't think you can walk through this moment recorded by John in chapter 13 and not think about that hymn that Paul captured in Philippians chapter 2. I read it in a couple of different translations this past week, but I thought that the paraphrase found in the message might be well suited for us today look what Eugene Peterson paraphrases this by saying says if you've gotten anything out at all of following Christ if his love has made any difference in your life if being in community with the spirit means anything to you if you have a heart if you care then do me a favor agree with each other love each other be deep-spirited friends don't push Your way to the front. Don't sweet talk your way to the top, but put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. And then it says this, you think of yourself the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he clung to it, to the advantages of that status, no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, He set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. The worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Because of that obedience, God lifted him high and honored him above anyone or anything ever, so that all created beings in heaven and on earth, even those long ago and dead buried, would bow and worship before this Jesus Christ and call out and praise that he is the master of all to the glorious honor of God the Father. That's a powerful statement of who Jesus is, how Jesus lives, and how Jesus loves. And Paul uses that beautiful picture of all that about Jesus to tell us who we are, how we should live, how we should love. What struck me the most this past week as I was preparing for this message was the vulnerability that is required to be served by Jesus as well as to serve like Jesus. I think you can see the pride, the self-sufficiency that Peter demonstrates. He resists Jesus. And it probably looks familiar. You know, we in our Western culture would actually see being served as a sign of weakness and serving others as a sign of strength. Just ask yourself how much fun you feel it is to have people care for you. Most of us are extremely resistant to that. We would walk across the parking lot to Gateway, uh, Deaconess Gateway this morning and visit every person in the hospital. But if we end up in the hospital, we often say, oh, I'm fine, I don't need anything, even though we might be biting down on a stick in the moment, right? We might help anybody in the grocery uh, store parking lot with their groceries, but if somebody helped us, even if we were on crutches that day, we'd say, no, I got it, I'm fine, I'm fine, right? There's a tendency in all of our hearts to resist being served, but we'd be willing to serve at the drop of a hat. I think that we take pride in that and I think it's for all the wrong reasons. I think we take our cues from Jesus who first said, I didn't come to be served but to serve, but he never resisted people serving him. I'll give you an example. Jesus was reclining at a meal in one of the Pharisees' house. And that night a woman walked in and the, the Bible describes her as a woman who had sinned a lot. I think you and I can relate. She came up to Jesus and she began to cry and she, her tears wet his feet. She started drying his feet with her hair. She had a, a jar of expensive perfume that she broke and poured out on his feet. And the Pharisee who was hosting the meal objected. So like, oh, Jesus, do you know who's touching you? Jesus says, I do. Yes, she has sinned much, but she's been forgiven much and she loves much. I think it's in that moment where we take a cue from Jesus that he is vulnerable enough to let people serve him. He also is vulnerable enough to serve others. Like I said, most of us would ultimately rather be served than to serve. We don't like people seeing our weakness. We don't like people seeing how we messed up or, or how we have, uh, don't have our life altogether, that we don't like people seeing our filth. And a lot of times, That includes God. We think we have to clean ourselves up before we can enter his presence. Isn't that the most dramatic irony ever? And so I wanna challenge us today as a takeaway. How you and I can be most like Jesus is by first of all, being vulnerable enough to be served, to let down our guard, to put ourselves out of the driver's seat and into the hands of someone else. Oh boy, we don't trust very easily, do we? And I think Jesus is a great example to follow in being served. And I also think, as well pointed out from this passage, that we're most like Jesus when we serve. To be served, we must humble ourselves. To serve, we must humble ourselves. We must let go of what we might get out of it or what we might portray by serving and humbly entrust ourselves to Jesus. To be treated like a servant is no fun. And that's probably when we know that we're probably moving in the right direction. Jesus was very clear that following him is about being served and serving. I think both are required to live and to love like him. Jesus says, what I've done for you, go and do likewise. That's a command. And he also provided a promise. He says, you'll be blessed when you do. Today we're going to wrap up our worship gathering in a little different way. I don't know that this has ever been done in a public worship service here at Crossroads. I don't know that it'll ever be done again, but it just didn't feel right moving through this passage without giving all of us an opportunity to actually have our feet washed. That's gonna be uncomfortable for probably most of us in this room. It's gonna require some humility and some vulnerability on all of our parts. But in just a few moments, Chris is just going to begin to sing some worship songs. And these songs are actually prayers that you and I can pray about how we can serve God and others in our life. And that's a very appropriate response to what Jesus has just demonstrated for us. But before we can go and serve, I think we really have to first be served by Jesus. And so we want to give everybody who would be interested in doing that the opportunity this morning. As Chris and the worship team sing the next several songs, what I just invite you to do is slip out from wherever you're seated and just come and be seated on one of, the, one of the first pews here in each section. I'd encourage you to go ahead when you get up there and just take off your shoes and socks. And we have some of our elders, some of our staff, and some volunteers here just to serve and, and wash the feet of anybody who would come forward. Um, if you're a female in the room and you would prefer to have a, another female wash your feet, I would encourage you to use the first pew on that side or the first pew on this side. Anybody can come to the center pews, but just want to be appropriate in that if that would be something that you would be more inclined to. Why would you come and have your feet washed this morning? Well, maybe you're here today and you have this kind of constant nagging. Does, how much does God really love you? Are there things that you have done that have kind of excluded you from his love? I hope today that you would come and have your feet washed as just a symbolic way for God to tell you how much he loves you. Here's the reality. If you were the only person on the face of the earth that needed a savior, God would have sent Jesus just for you. That's how much he loves you. And what Jesus was doing in that night as he washed his disciples' feet, he was expressing his love to them to the fullest extent also pointing them to what he would do for them the next night by dying on the cross for them. I would just encourage you today, if you just need to be reminded of how much God loves you, just come and be seated on the front pew and let someone wash your feet. You know, maybe you're here today and you're the one who's constantly in the driver's seat. You know what it feels like to be Peter because people are looking to you to speak when they need some advice or direction. It's everybody's looking to your eyes when they're in that moment and they need some direction. And I would encourage you if you find yourself in that seat to recognize what a heavy burden that is, but how much you're a follower before you're a leader. And I would just extend to you the opportunity to be reminded once again that you're not the one in charge, but actually Jesus is in charge. And humble yourself and let somebody wash your feet and Just feel in that moment that Jesus came to serve your greatest need and also to lead you as you serve the needs of others. You know, maybe you're here today and you're embarking on something new. Maybe it's a new relationship, a new friendship. Maybe it's a new assignment at work or maybe it's a new responsibility or maybe after hearing last week that we've all been sent, maybe there's just something that's kind of stirring up in your spirit that God's saying, "I'm, I'm calling you to go and to do or to serve or to share maybe before you embark and god sends you he he just needs to serve you this morning maybe you're here today you just need to respond first by being served so that you can go and serve others so we're going to extend that invitation to you i'm going to pray and then after i pray for the next uh, till the rest of our service you have this opportunity to come and be uh, on the front row and, and just be served by somebody who loves God and is extending this as as an offer of love to you. And so if you're interested, we just invite you to come. Let's pray together. God, um, the scripture is so filled with so many examples of your character being revealed, being demonstrated in very tangible ways. And this one feels very foreign to us in the modern day world we live in. And yet maybe it's for this moment it needs to feel more profound than anything else so god i pray that you would stir in hearts you would move god this is all for your glory this is all for your purposes and it's all for us to remember how much you love us that you loved us so much you came to serve our greatest need and willingly went to the cross for us so that we could be forgiven so we could be made whole so that we could become your children, so we could live in heaven forever. And it was also for a powerful example for us to follow as we go into a world that so desperately needs somebody to stand up and do the things that nobody else seems to be doing, even though we all seem to see. And so God, may this moment help remind us of who you are and how much you love us, but also may it serve as a way to motivate us to go and love and serve others like you. And I pray that through The powerful name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord and our example.